Chapter Six of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter Six: The Regular Army of Destruction. In order to cure any disease, the surgeon must make of it a correct diagnosis. It is useless to try to prescribe remedies without a thorough understanding of the trouble. That the best and most interesting wildlife of America is disappearing at a rapid rate, we all know only too well. That proposition is entirely beyond the domain of argument. The fact that a species or a group of species has made a little gain here and there, or is stationary, does not sensibly diminish the force of the descending blow. The wildlife situation is full of surprises. For example, in 1902 I was astounded by the extent to which bird life had decreased over the 130 miles between Miles City, Montana, and the Missouri River since 1886, for there was no reason to expect anything of the kind. Even the jackrabbits and coyotes had almost totally disappeared. The duties of the present hour, that fairly thrust themselves into our faces, and will not be put aside, are these. First, to save valuable species from extermination. Second, to preserve a satisfactory representation of our once rich fauna, to hand down to posterity. Third, to protect the farmer and fruit-grower from the enormous losses that the destruction of our insectivorous and rodent-eating birds is now inflicting upon both the producer and consumer. Fourth, to protect our forest, by protecting the birds that keep down the myriads of insects that are destructive to trees and shrubs. Fifth, to preserve to the future sportsmen of America enough game and fish that they may have at least a taste of the legitimate pursuit of game in the open that has made life so interesting to the sportsmen of today. For any civilized nation to exterminate valuable and interesting species of wild animals, birds or fishes, is more than a disgrace. It is a crime. We have no right, legal, moral, or commercial, to exterminate any valuable or interesting species, because none of them belong to us, to exterminate or not, as we please. For the people of any civilized nation to permit the slaughter of the wild birds that protect its crops, its fruits, and its forests from the insect hordes, is worse than folly. It is sheer orneriness and idiocy. People who are either so lazy or asinine as to permit the slaughter of their best friends deserve to have their crops destroyed and their forests ravaged. They deserve to pay twenty cents a pound for their cotton when the boll weevil has cut down the normal supply. It is very desirable that we should now take an inventory of the forces that have been, and today are, active in the destruction of our wild birds, mammals, and game fishes. During the past ten years a sufficient quantity of facts and figures has become available to enable us to secure a reasonably full and accurate view of the whole situation. As we pause on our hilltop and survey the field of carnage, we find that we are reviewing the army of destruction. It is indeed a motley array. We see troop sportsmen beside ordinary gunners, game hogs, and meat hunters. Handsome setter dogs are mixed up with the coyotes, cats, foxes, and skunks, and well-gowned women and ladies' maids are jostled by half-naked, poor white, and black negro plume hunters. 
Verily the destruction of wildlife makes strange companions. Let us briefly review the several army corps that together make up the army of the destroyers. Space in this volume forbids an extended notice of each. Unfortunately, it is impossible to segregate some of these classes, and number each one, for they merge together too closely for that. But we can at least describe the several classes that form the great mass of destroyers. THE GENTLEMAN SPORTSMAN These men are the very bond of sinew of wildlife preservation. These are the men who have red blood in their veins, who annually hear the red gods calling, who love the earth, the mountains, the woods, the waters, and the sky. These are the men to whom the bag is a matter of small importance, and to whom the bag limit has only academic interest, because in nine cases out of ten they do not care to kill all that the law allows. The tenth and exceptional time is when bag limit is one. A gentleman sportsman is a man who protects game, stops shooting when he has enough, without reference to the legal bag limit and whenever a species is threatened with extinction, he conscientiously refrains from shooting it. The true sportsmen of the world are the men who once were keen in the stubble or on the trail, but who have been halted by the general slaughter and the awful decrease of game. Many of them, long before a hare has turned gray, have hung up their guns forever and turned to the camera. These are the men who are willing to hand out checks or to leave their mirth and their employment and to go to the firing line at their state capitals, to lock horns with the bull-headed killers of wildlife who recognize no check or limit save the law. These are the men who have done the most to put upon our statute books the laws that thus far have saved some of our American game from total annihilation, and who, so we firmly believe, will be chiefly instrumental in tightening the lines of protection around the remnant. These are the men who are making and stocking game preserves, public and private, great and small. If you wish to know some of these men, I will tell you where to find a goodly number of them, and when you find them, you will also find that they are men you would enjoy camping with. Look in the membership list of the Boone and Crockett Club, Campfire Club of America, the Lewis and Clark Club of Pittsburgh, the New York State League, the Shiker Club of London, the Society for the Preservation of the Wild Fauna of the British Empire, the Massachusetts Fish and Game Protective Association, the Springfield Sportsman Association, the Campfire Clubs of Detroit and Chicago, and the North American Fish and Game Protective Association. There are other bodies of sportsmen that I would like to name, were space available, but to set down here a complete list is quite impossible. The best and the most of the game protective laws now in force in the United States and Canada were brought into existence through the initiative and efforts of the real sportsmen of those two nations. But for their activity, exerted on the right side, the settled portion of North America would today be an utterly gameless land. Even though the sportsmen have taken their toll of the wilds, they have made the laws that have saved a remnant of the game until 1912. For all that, however, every man who still shoots game is a soldier in the army of destruction. There is no blinking that fact. Such men do not stand on the summit with the men who now protect the game and do not shoot at all. The millions of men who do not shoot and who also do nothing to protect or preserve wildlife do not count. In this warfare they are merely ciphers in front of the real figures. THE GUNNERS WHO KILL TO THE LIMIT 
out of the enormous mass of men who annually take up arms against the remnant of wild life and are called sportsmen i believe that only one out of every five hundred conscientiously stops shooting when the game becomes scarce and extinction is impending all of the others feel that it is right and proper to kill all the game that they can kill up to the legal bag limit it is the reasoning of shylock justice demands it and the law doth give it especially is this true of the men who pay their one dollar per year for a resident hunting license and feel that in doing so they have done a great big thing this is a very deadly frame of mind ethically it is entirely wrong and at least two million men and boys who shoot american game must be shown that it is wrong this is the spirit of extermination clothed in the robes of law and justice whenever and wherever game birds are so scarce that a good shot who hunts hard during a day in the fields find only three or four birds he should stop shooting at once and devote his mind and energies to the problem of bringing back the game it is strange that conditions do not make this duty clear to every conscientious citizen the shylock spirit which prompts a man to kill all that the law allows is a terrible scourge to the wild life of america and to the world at large it is the spirit of extermination according to law even the killing of game for the market is not so great a scourge as this for this spirit searches out the game in every nook and cranny of the world and spares not in effect it says if the law is defective it is right for me to take every advantage of it i do not need to have any conscience in the matter outside the letter of the law the extent to which this amazing spirit prevails is positively awful. You will find it among pseudo-game protectors to a paralyzing extent. It is the great gunner's paradox, and it pervades this country from corner to corner. No, there is no use in trying to educate the mass of the hunters of America out of it, as a means of saving the game, for positively it cannot be done. Do not waste time trying it. If you rely upon it, you will be doing a great wrong to wildlife and promoting extermination. The only remedy is sweeping laws for long closed seasons for a great many species. Forget the paltry dollar-a-year license money. The license fees never represent more than a tenth part of the value of the game that is killed under licenses. The savage desire to kill all that the law allows often is manifested in men in whom we naturally expect to find a very different spirit by way of illumination i offer three cases out of the many that i could state case number one the duck breeder a gentleman of my acquaintance has spent several years and much money in breeding wild ducks from my relations with him i had acquired the belief that he was a great lover of ducks and at least wished all species well one whizzing cold day in winter he called upon me and stated that he had been duck hunting which surprised me he added i have just spent two days on great south bay and i made a great killing in the two days i got ninety-four ducks i said how could you do it caring for wild ducks as you do well i had hunted ducks twice before on great south bay and didn't have very good luck but this time the cold weather drove the ducks in, and I got square with them. Case number two, the ornithologist. A short time ago the news was published in Forest and Stream that a well-known ornithologist had distinguished himself in one of the Midwestern states by the skill he had displayed in bagging thirty-four ducks in one day, greatly to the envy of the natives.
and if this shoe fits any American naturalist, he is welcome to put it on and wear it. Case number three, the sportsman. A friend of mine in the South is the owner of a game preserve in which wild ducks are at times very numerous. Once upon a time he was visited by a northern sportsman who takes a deep and abiding interest in the preservation of game. The sportsman was invited to go out duck shooting, ducks being then in season there. He said, Yes, I will go, and I want you to put me in a place where I can kill a hundred ducks in a day. I never have done that yet, and I would like to do it once. All right, said my friend. I can put you in such a place, and if you can shoot well enough, you can kill a hundred ducks in a day. The effort was made in all earnestness. There was much shooting, but few were the ducks that fell before it. In concluding this story, my friend remarked in a tone of disgust, All the game-preserving sportsmen that come to me are just like that. They want to kill all they can kill. There is a blood test by which to separate the conscientious sportsman from the mere gunners. Here it is. A sportsman stops shooting when game becomes scarce, and he does not object to long-closed-season laws. But a gunner believes in killing all that the law allows, and he objects to long-closed-seasons. I warrant that whenever and wherever this test is applied, it will separate the sheep from the goats. It applies in all America, all Asia and Africa, and in Greenland with equal force. The Game Hog This term was coined by G. O. Shields in 1897, when he was editor and owner of Recreation Magazine, and it has come into general use. It has been recognized by a judge on the bench as being an appropriate term to apply to all men who selfishly slaughter wild game beyond the limits of decency. Although it is a harsh term, and was mercilessly used by Mr. Shields, in his fierce war on the men who slaughtered game for sport, it has jarred at least a hundred thousand men into their first realization of the fact that today there is a difference between decency and indecency in the pursuit of game. The use of the term has done very great good, but strange to say, it has made for Mr. Shields a great many enemies outside the ranks of the game hogs themselves, for this one might fairly suppose that there is such a thing as a sympathetic game hog. One thing at least is certain. During a period of about six years, while his war with the game hogs was on, from Maine to California, Mr. Shields' name became a genuine terror to excessive killers of game and it is reasonably certain that his war saved a great number of game birds from the slaughter that otherwise would have overtaken them. The number of armed men and boys who annually take the field in the United States in the pursuit of birds and quadrupeds is enormous. People who do not shoot have no conception of it, and neither do they comprehend the mechanical perfection and fearful deadlines of the weapons used. This feature of the situation can hardly be realized until some aspect of it is actually seen. I have been at some pains to collect the latest figures showing the number of hunting licenses issued in 1911, but the total is incomplete. In some states the figures are not obtainable, and in some states there are no hunter's license laws. The figures of hunting licenses issued in 1911 that I have obtained from official sources are set forth below. The United States Army of Destruction, hunting licenses issued in 1911, Alabama, 5,090, California, 138,689, Colorado, 
41,058, Connecticut, 19,635, Idaho, 50,342, Illinois, 192,244, Indiana, 54,813, Iowa, 91,000, Kansas, 44,069, Louisiana, 76,000, Maine, 2,552, Massachusetts, 45,039, Michigan, 22,323, Missouri, 66,662, Montana, 59,291, Nebraska, 39,402, New Hampshire, 33,542, New Jersey, 61,920, New Mexico, 7,000, New York, 150,222, Rhode Island, 6,541, South Dakota, 31,054, Utah, 27,800, Vermont, 31,762, Washington, about 40,000, Wisconsin, 138,457, Wyoming, 9,721. Total number of regularly licensed gunners, 1,486,228. The average for the 27 states that issued licenses as shown above is 55,046 for each state. Now the 21 states issuing no licenses or not reporting produced in 1911 fully as many gunners per capita as did the other 27 states. Computed fairly on existing averages, they must have turned out a total of 1,155,966 gunners, making for all the United States 2,642,194 armed men and boys warring upon the remnant of game in 1911. We are not counting the large number of lawless hunters who never take out licenses. Now is Mr. Beard's picture a truthful representation or not? New York, with only deer, ruffed grouse, shorebirds, ducks, and a very few woodcock to shoot annually, puts into the field a hundred fifty thousand two hundred twenty-two armed men. In 1909 they killed about nine thousand deer. New Jersey spending thirty thousand dollars in 1912 in efforts to restock her covers with games, and with a population of two million five hundred thirty-seven thousand one hundred sixty-seven, sent out in 1911 a total army of sixty-one thousand nine hundred twenty well-armed gunners. How can any of her games survive? New Hampshire, with only four hundred thirty thousand five hundred seventy-two population has 33,542 licensed hunters, equal to 33 regiments of full strength. Vermont, with 355,956 people, sends out annually an army of 31,762 men, who hunt according to law, and in 1910 they killed 3,649 deer. Utah, with only 373,351 population, had 27,800 men in the field, after her very small remnant of game. How can any wild thing of Utah escape? Montana, population 376,053, had in 1911 an army of 59,291 well-armed men, warring chiefly upon the big game, and swiftly exterminating it.
How long can any of the big game stand before the army of two and one-half million well-armed men, eager and keen to kill, and out to get an equivalent for their annual expenditure in guns, ammunition, and other expenses? In addition to the hunters themselves, they are assisted by thousands of expert guides, thousands of horses, thousands of dogs, hundreds of automobiles, and hundreds of thousands of tents. Each big game hunter has an experienced guide who knows the haunts and habits of the game, the best feeding grounds, the best trails, and everything else that will aid the hunter in taking the game at a disadvantage and destroying it. The big game rifles are of the highest power, the longest range, the greatest accuracy, and the best repeating mechanism that modern inventive genius can produce. It is said that in Wyoming the Maxim silencer is now being used. England has produced a weapon of new type, called the scatter rifle, which is intended for use on ducks. The best binoculars are used in searching out the game, and horses carry the hunters and guides as near as possible to the game. For bears, baits are freely used, and in the pursuit of pumas, dogs are employed to the limit of the available supply. The deadlines of the automobile in hunting already is so apparent that North Dakota has wisely and justly forbidden their use. 1911. The swift machine enables city gunmen to penetrate game regions that they could not reach with horses, and hunt through from four to six localities per day, instead of only one, as formerly. The use of automobiles in hunting should be everywhere prohibited. Every appliance and assistance that money can buy, the modern sportsman secures to help him against the game. The game is beset during its breeding season by various wild enemies, foxes, cats, wolves, pumas, lynxes, eagles, and many other predatory species. The only help that it receives is in the form of an annual close season, which thus far has saved in America only a few local moose, white-tailed deer, and a few game birds from steady and sure extermination. The bag limits on which vast reliance is placed to preserve the wild game are a fraud, a delusion, and a snare. The few local exceptions only prove the generality of the rule. In every state, without one single exception, the bag limits are far too high, and the laws are of deadly liberality. In many states, the bag limit laws on birds are an absolute dead letter. Fancy the 125 wardens of New York enforcing the bag limit laws on 150,000 gunners. It is this horrible condition that is enabling the licensed army of destruction to get in its deadly work on the game all over the world. In America, the over-liberality of the laws are to blame for two-thirds of the carnival of slaughter, and the successful evasions of the law are responsible for the other third. The only remedy for the present extermination of game according to law that so rapidly and so furiously is proceeding all over the United States, Canada, Alaska, and Africa, is ten-year close seasons on all the species threatened with extinction, and immensely reduced open seasons and bag limits on all the others. Will the people who still have wild game take heed now, and clamp down the brakes, hard and fast, before it is too late? Or will they have their game exterminated? Shall we have five-year close seasons, or close seasons of five hundred years? We must take our choice. Shall we hand down to our children a gameless continent, with all the shame that such a calamity will entail? 
We have got to answer these questions like men, or they will soon be answered for us by the extermination of the wildlife. For twenty-five years we have been smarting under the disgrace of the extermination of our bison millions. Let us not repeat the dose through the destruction of other species. End of chapter 6